You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors Podcast exclusively on the Pod Station. Welcome everyone to episode 7 of the Johnson & Boone podcast. My name's Mark. Um, I will be your host for this show, um, but I will be joined by another fresh face from the Johnson & Boone team. Uh, obviously, we've heard from Rob numerous times so far. Uh, last last episode, I was joined by Jonathan, who was the expert dealing with the child access and family issues. We've decided to bring in another of the experts from the team. This is the uh, Johnson from Johnson & Boone in the form of Chris Johnson. How are we doing? Hi, Mark. Very well. How are you? I'm not too bad. Of course, we're social distancing, so we're doing this through the interweb. Um, and uh, this is your first podcast, Chris. Um, it is um, very much so, uh, but I'm looking forward to doing it. Oh, well, I'll go easy on you. Uh, so, <laughs> just a quick recap. If you do want to check out any of the previous shows, uh, then you can find them on johnsonandboon.co.uk website. Um, you'll actually find their links to all the major podcast platforms where you can check the shows out. Um, you can also download the Johnson & Boon mobile app. It's absolutely free. You can get it on both Apple and Android app stores. And if you do download it, not only can you find all the podcasts there ready to listen to on your mobile device, you can also find out all about the Johnson & Boone services. You can check out the tips and advice articles that go on there regularly. You can also book appointments uh, with any of the team. So if any of the shows do bring to light some issues that you do want some help with, then all you need to do is go on there and you can book with one of the experts from the team and hopefully they will be able to resolve your problems quickly and easily uh, so all of that stuff um, is available right now go and check it out um, at the end we'll also give some contact information so if you do want to get in contact either to ask Chris some more questions or any of the other team for that matter or if you want to throw a topic our way so that we can pick it up and delve into it with a bit more detail uh, then just drop us a line we'll give the information at the end as I say um, so those previous shows, you've touched on many, 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 many things. Um, just uh, one of many services that Johnson & Boone offer. Um, what topic are we going to be covering with you, Chris? Um, today's podcast will discuss the initial stages of divorce and the grounds for obtaining a divorce. I guess that's something that people aren't necessarily, um, and I include myself in that as well. It's it, There's so many different ways in which relationships can be cemented under the law i guess for want of a better phrase that understanding divorce and how it fits into things like civil partnerships which are relatively new or same-sex marriages which again are relatively new um it, it does divorce apply to all of those situations and those relationships yes one of the things obviously with the civil partnerships um there is a misconception by a lot of people who, who contact us in that they believe that simply that they've been living together as cohabitees for a long period of time, but they have the same rights. And that's completely incorrect. And they're often shocked to understand that actually the rights are completely different. So we will be addressing the cohabitees 
right in a different podcast at a later date. Uh, today's podcast is, is to talk about the basically the grounds for divorce and also the procedural steps that they need to take to actually achieve that aim. Okay, so uh, what are the definitions of of a of a marriage? I guess for want of a let's let's use marriage as a, as an overarching description of some of those those legal partnerships that we've just kind of mentioned there. What what kind of definition does it need to meet for you to actually well, need the, divorce? The, the the common law definition of marriage is 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 defined as the voluntary union for life of one man and one woman to the exclusion of others. And the English law requires that the parties must possess the capacity to marry, the consent to marry one another, and then they must comply with specified formalities in order, in terms of the ceremony, often you'll see that at court, at, at churches or civil um, ceremonies where they have to go through the formalities for their marriage to take effect. Okay, so the the description of uh, a voluntary union of one man and one woman, has that now been modified to include same-sex marriages and yes. civil partnerships? That's correct. Cool. So when we're talking about divorce, we're talking about those circumstances as well. So, um, I mean, nobody wants to talk about this subject. It's not something that people, when they start fresh-faced and starry-eyed at the beginning of a relationship, are preempting ending up on this path. Um obviously relationships it does happen from time to time and you find yourself in that situation so i guess that the question is when when you do find yourself in that situation what are the circumstances that kind of give rise to you being able to look at the divorce option um well there's a variety of reasons why people contact us and um, sometimes people are confused as to um what their position, their legal position is in, in taking the step of divorce. They're also concerned as um, combined with the divorce, um, what would happen upon divorce, in particular in relation to the finances. Um, we had to explain to them, first of all, that there is actually only one ground for divorce, and that is that the marriage has irretrievably broken down. And so that's the one ground that needs to be um, satisfied for, a, for divorce, but they also then must um, also satisfy that they've got one of the five facts, which allows them to petition for divorce in, in the, the family court. Okay, so what are those five facts that people usually have to, to have met? Well, two of them are basically based on separation, and three of them are based are fault-based reasons for seeking a divorce. The first one is, and by far the most prevalent, is unreasonable behaviour. The second one is adultery. The third fact is desertion, two years continuous absence. The, there's also an a, a right to actually separate by consent if you've been apart for two years. Or you can also seek a divorce on the grounds that you've been apart five years um, at which point you don't need the consent of the other partner. We should probably break down those facts in a bit more detail so people can understand what the criteria is for, for example, unreasonable behaviour. Because if I um, was, uh, well, if my partner was to try and challenge me for every time I was unreasonable, we'd probably be divorced 500 times. So 
what kind of what what kind of legal context of unreasonable behaviour are we talking about as opposed to I've constantly got hold of the remote and leave the lid off the milk. Is that all that you do, Mark? Uh, um, let's well, stick to those for legal purposes or else I might need your services. <laughs> um, well, unreasonable behaviour, it actually covers a various set of circumstances which can be uh, unreasonable behaviour on their own merit or they can be sort of a cumulative effect of um, issues that constitute unreasonable behaviour. And essentially what we're actually saying is because of the behaviour, the other party finds it intolerable to actually remain in the marriage and therefore cannot reasonably be expected to remain because of the other person's conduct. Now, when you're filing a petition, it's important to understand that um, you have to explain in a petition on paper to to the judge who's reading this that the behaviour is such that the other person cannot reasonably be expected to stay within the marriage. And the behaviour can encompass things such as domestic violence, alcohol or drug addiction. It may well be that a partner's got a gambling addiction. It may well be that the person is simply feels that the other partner has such a controlling nature that they restrict them over a long period of time during the marriage. An example of that would be where somebody uh, has a situation where they have no access to the finances, they rely entirely on the other partner to give them money uh, to basically exist week to week. And that is obviously an example of controlling behaviour. It, it can also cause the person to have a last, lack of self-esteem um, and that they feel that they are stuck in the relationship. Um, of course, there can be other elements where not where somebody's controlling somebody, but they could also be something where they're causing them either physical or mental abuse. And again, as we all know, mental abuse can take many forms. It can be uh, where people feel that they are walking on eggshells each day when they're talking to the other partner in case they become aggressive with them or they become extremely moody, refuse to talk to them, refuse to communicate. And often that leads to people feeling of being unsupported or unloved. And it makes them feel, often people will say that because of low esteem, they become depressed and lots of other issues follow from that. So these are just a number of issues that can be considered when, you, when, when you're talking to the client as to what is the behavior that you deem unreasonable. Often there'll be situations where people have been together for such a long time that essentially they've simply fallen out of love and they exist in the same property. They live under the same roof, but live separate lifestyles within the house. In other words, they don't communicate, they don't sleep together, they have, there's no intimacy, they have meals separate and, and, they, and they have separate uh, pastimes where they don't actually go out with each other and, and, and essentially, at some point, maybe one of the partners thinks this is not for me and seeks to cite that as a, as a ground for un, unreasonable behaviour. So there's, a, an, an, there's actually a plethora of reasons why people would deem that they don't want to remain in the relationship. 
the importance for the practitioner is to understand what those reasons are and to set it out in a petition that will actually be entitled somebody to have the grant for a divorce. I will come back to unreasonable behaviour because I've got a couple of questions that have just cropped up there. Um, but can we just quickly run through the other facts um, uh, that would apply for getting a divorce? So uh, what's the second fact for getting a divorce? Um, well, again, the the most common after unreasonable behaviour is two years by consent, um, which where the parties have been apart for two years seeking a divorce by consent uh, with each other. in other words they have not lived together for that period and they're seeking now to dissolve the marriage by agreement but which is a different petition to the court okay so we've got two years um there's a five-year one is there where you don't need consent yeah this is where people um have not lived together for five years and they, um, again, at that point, decide that obviously the relationship is, is it's a permanent break in the relationship and they can apply to the court to discharge the marriage, uh, but they don't need the consent of the other partner. Okay, so that's three down. What, what, what are the remaining two? The first one is adultery, which is if the applicant has, has evidence that the respondent has committed adultery with another man or woman, um, then they can file for adultery. Um, you have to note that in terms of the same-sex marriages, you can't claim um, adultery in, in those circumstances. However, in adultery, what also needs to be shown is that the parties have lived have lived apart. If the if the applicant forgives the respondent for the for the adulterous act, and they stay together for a period of six months since the act, then they cannot claim adultery at that point and the petition will be dismissed. And what's the final fact? Now, the final one is, um, it's a very small percentage and that is desertion, where the one partner's left the other um, and they've not had any contact for over two years. Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals. Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboon.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code VEDSHESH. Okay, so those are the five the five facts. So you got your unreasonable behaviour, adultery, desertion, uh, you've been separate for two years and you consent, or five years being separated without consent. Now, just going back particularly to the unreasonable behaviour, which is the one that you said was the most common fact that people relied upon, um, and it's clear to see from the rather wide definitions of what that constitutes, how that would be. Um one of the main criticisms that I'm aware of of the whole system of divorce in this country is that it's quite combative. There is always an element of blame 
that needs to be landed on people in order to get a divorce. You gave a, a lovely example then of where two people have just drifted apart over the years um, and have ended up living separate lives. So it's almost a semantic that they are technically married. It's a piece of paper as opposed to it's, it's legitimately how they are living their lives. Um, so is there any changes in the pipeline that are going to try and address this? Or is this something that you have to try and explain to people? Because presumably there are people who come to you to get a divorce in perfectly amicable circumstances but because they've not been separate for two years you're having to either have a conversation with them saying number one you've got to be separate for two years or number two one of you needs to point the finger at the other yeah i think one of the issues which is which is getting a lot of media attention at the moment is is that lots of people want to get divorced and but they don't really want to cause any issues or cause any distress to the other party. They simply want to move on. Um, but there are, at this at this present time, there are no such issues um, in divorce as a no-fault divorce. And so they have to, at the moment, the, the, the parties who's bringing petition has to set out one of the five facts. Now, the Law Commission commissioned a report which is going through Parliament at the moment, and so I think it's at the second reading, is um, based on a no-fault divorce, um, where the parties can um, simply divorce um, on the basis that there is no fault. As I said before, in the current position, there are two grounds of separation and three grounds where you have to prove fault. Under the new suggestions is that rather than one person bringing the petition, both parties can bring the petition jointly and seek the end of the marriage. Um, and this would cut out the combative reasons why some people, when they get a divorce petition, um, they will either do one or two things. They will, they will, they, they can accept it or they will, people will defend it simply because they don't agree with the grant. An example of that is there's, there's a case which is, a fairly prominent case called Owens and Owens, which was decided in 2017. And that was a long marriage where the, the couples, one party wanted to end the marriage and clearly the other party didn't. And it was set out in, in such a way as unreasonable behaviour as that the ground that the person who was seeking the divorce simply cited examples of unreasonable behaviour, which the judge uh, clearly didn't agree with um, and said that it, basically it was more mere altercations between the parties of a kind that's expected in a marriage. And the importance of me raising that is when you are talking about unreasonable behaviour, the practitioner has to be clear that if it's only one party seeking the, the divorce on the grounds of unreasonable behaviour, the grounds have to be sufficient enough to demonstrate that there has been some unreasonable behaviour. And it's a fine line between setting out that in a petition and at the same time seeking not to um, antagonise the other party so that they don't defend the divorce. Now, um, a good way of doing that is to contact them ahead of filing the divorce and seeking agreement that 
these are the grounds that we're seeking to end the marriage on. And do you intend to defend the divorce? Is there any? And then they can come back to you. And that will stop issues like the case of Owens and Owens, where perhaps with some sort of formal contact before these matters were get into a litigated battle, it will save people you know, thousands of pounds um, in dealing with this matter. Now, the issue of no-fault divorce hasn't actually been ratified at the moment, so we are still left with the five facts at this time. But it is important that more and more people today don't want to get into a confrontation. The law is some 45 years old at the moment, and people have moved on. And lots of people simply want to move on with their lives. And um, whilst they don't want to remain in the marriage, they don't want to be going through um, a situation where they have to cite behaviour against the partner as a reason to ending the marriage. They have to wait and see where that gets to in the future. But it is a proposal to go through um, Parliament, and I think that will ultimately, undoubtedly, end up as a, as, as the position in in, uh, in matrimonial cases. It's tricky, isn't it? The, it's quite an emotional process that you would have to go through. Nobody likes a relationship coming to an end, and even if it's you who's making that call, it's still not a pleasant experience. So to add into the equation a finger-pointing element to it, we're all guilty of it when somebody levels some sort of blame or criticism our way. Your natural instinct is to defend yourself and, and to try and um, protect your your interests and, and and I guess the way in which the law is at the moment, it does create that headache. I think you're right in what you're saying. Some people, when they come to see you, they are confused. They they, they know that the marriage is over and they want to set out um, grounds to, to end the marriage. They, at the same time, don't want to upset the partner in terms of citing behaviour. And so they'll be, they'll be a little bit um, cautious about... Um, what they want to say to 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 the other partner. Now, often a way around this is obviously is to send the petition to the other party, setting out that you want to end the marriage, and here are the grounds that we're seeking to end, and do they intend to defend the divorce? A way around this for the respondent is to say, um, I accept that the marriage is over. I don't accept the grounds as as pleaded, but I don't intend to defend the divorce. Now. That is a way of saying, um, well, you know, I hear what the other person says, but I don't accept what they say. But nonetheless, um, in the overall scheme of things, the marriage clearly has irretrievably broken down, um, just not on the grounds that they say. Now, that's a way forward um, at the moment where the party says, you know, I won't defend a divorce, but I don't accept what the other party says. And that's far more sensible than... The position where um, somebody um, takes or tries to cross petition on their own grounds of, of saying because they're saying there's unreasonable behaviour on the other side. That happens very occasionally, but it, it's not a sensible way in terms of cost or moving the matter forward. Um, of course, you'll still always get some people who don't accept that the marriage is over and don't accept that they've acted unreasonably. And therefore, they will seek to defend the divorce in in those circumstances. It's very few who defend them, but but nonetheless, um, it still happens. And the case of Owens v. Owens was an example of that. Um, the difficulty in that case is, as I said previously, is probably 
the practitioner was was um, in a situation when he's drafted that that actual petition, and the judge has not been satisfied uh, it, that it's strong enough to constitute, in inverted commas, unreasonable behaviour. Um, so it's a tricky area. Some people do it themselves. That's why you go to uh, legal firms to try to help you get over these hurdles as they stand at the moment. I was just about to say that it, it's a good it's a good example of why you would try and get some advice because there's lots of caveats and nuances that we've just uncovered just in this short period. Um, of course, you've got the unreasonable behaviour issue where if you you're trying to avoid a combative and and hotly contested divorce when it doesn't need to be then it's very much a case of getting the advice of what what you can do what your options are and then potentially communicating with your soon-to-be former partner to try and reach a way of of getting through those those issues as i think also from an emotional point of view as well it helps both parties if they can um, understand that the marriage is broken down and that they want to move on. And the best way to do that is is obviously to say, um, clearly you have to satisfy the, the unreasonable behaviour is is close to 50%, 45 to 50% of divorce petitions um, are based on, on that grant, on that fact. Um, and so the less emotional this can be and the less combative, it obviously helps the parties then move on at a later stage to understand that as well as the uh, the divorce, there's finances to sort out, and there's issues in relation to the children and how to how they're going to move forward and deal with all of those matters. And it helps if at the start of it they're not at each other's um, throat, if, if we want to a better word, in, in terms of arguing about points that. Um, ultimately, the marriage still has irretrievably broken down. And the case that you gave in an example is another way of highlighting that these things aren't straightforward because not not everybody is in agreement when somebody suggests the idea of divorce. In the example you gave, the other party was quite keen to avoid the whole divorce situation. It was quite challenging and getting some legal advice would help understand those issues. So highlighting whether or not the unreasonable behaviour of constantly keeping hold of the TV remote or leaving the lid off the milk, which were the examples I gave earlier, aren't sufficient to do it, in which case they might need to look at the separation for two years option or the five-year option, which which might have to be another option that they consider, even if it's their hand being forced, because they don't think they'll get through on the unreasonable behaviour grounds. Well, well I, think, I think that's correct, isn't it? I mean, as, as I said before, the judge only believed in that case that they were mere altercations of a kind that is expected in most marriages. But if you can't satisfy that as we stand, then you have to consider, well, what are your other options? And often the only option is that the parties need to separate and be apart for two years by consent. That will change if the law changes, but as it stands at the moment, um, that's what that's what we have, and that's what we will advise people on when they come in. I mean, often it's at the point where the marriage has broken down and and, and in, you know, majority of cases, people accept that. It's just that nobody likes to see on paper that the other party's saying this, this or this about them. So it, it's all about trying to advise the client um, the best way to move it forward. But ultimately, um, people don't want to be trapped long-term in a, in a loveless marriage. And so we advise them the best way to do that as amicably as we can. Um, but at the same time, explaining to them that, you know, um, 
the, the difficulties if they remain in the marriage as well. Uh, what is it, assuming that they do have the sufficient grounds or they do meet the facts um, required, what is the process that they will go through in order to achieve that divorce? Because there's different elements to it, of course. How do you divide all of the assets that the, the marriage has built up over the years, etc.? How, how do we get through all of these? Well, I mean, the divorce and the financial matters are complete, separate and distinct areas. Divorce and um, finances are completely separate and distinct areas. Um, lots of people will uh, seek a divorce and will be able to obtain advice on a fixed fee basis, um, which is generally anything between 650 and 850 plus VAT, depending on um, what firm you're, who's advising you. Um, and then there's a court fee of £550, which is payable to the court. And that's for them to administer the whole process from receiving the petition through to the decree absolute. Is that is that £500 something that's paid by each side? So is it £1,000 or is it just £500 for the process? So arguably, if it was, say, an amicable process, you're almost splitting it 250 each. It's five hundred. Whoever brings the petition has to pay the cost, and it's actually five fifty at the moment. Five hundred fifty pounds. Um, they can say in the petition that they want the respondent to pay the cost of the petition, and that will be a matter for the judge to decide um, on consideration of the petition and the acknowledgement of service that will ultimately come in from the respondent. Um, so that's that's how you deal with in terms of the divorce and I'll explain the procedure shortly about that. But in terms of the finances, um, clearly um, before you can get a financial order which deals with the uh, mandatory assets, you will need to satisfy the court um, that there is an entitlement to a divorce and therefore whilst you can work in the background between the parties to seek to agree a financial order, you can't actually get one until the decree nisi is pronounced in court, and therefore thereafter the court would be would intervene in terms of ratifying any order that the parties can reach as a financial order. But that's a separate area, um, which we will be addressing at a later date. That is very complex. It did it depends on lots of different factors that the court will consider concerning need, income, pensions, um, housing, children. There's lots of different factors that the courts have to take into account, the length of the marriage, and all of these will have an, a, an impact as to what would be a fair outcome in terms of uh, an equalisation of income for the parties moving forward. Um, but that's separate to this. I always advise people that if they have any marital assets, they should deal with it within the divorce uh, proceedings rather than prior to them getting the decree absolute so that they can tie up all of the issues within the one set of proceedings and that. But, but in terms of the divorce, uh, people will come to us, we will listen to them, we will advise them what's appropriate as the way to move forward with under the, obviously the one ground of it, it's broken down, uh, and then what fact is relevant to them. We would then draft the petition. Uh, we would advise the client that we propose sending that to the respondent setting out um, in a very nice le uh, introductory letter that we represent our client as seeking a divorce 
and we give them a draft petition for them to consider. Uh, we'd ask them to contact us to confirm that they do not intend to defend the divorce. Um, thereafter, um, hopefully they will respond to us, but we will then uh, file the petition at court and the court will then uh, send out to the respondent a sealed copy of something that we've already sent them. But So it's not a surprise when it lands on the doorstep from the court. Um, and that's the start of the process from our point of view. The clients confirm the grounds, we've set them out, we've advised the other party that the petition is coming, and we've asked them to engage in terms of confirm that it's not going to be defended, which is obviously better for both parties, if, if possible. Um, and then we'll move the process forward once they've read the petition and confirmed to the court that they don't intend to defend the divorce. And as I've said previously, that could include them saying they don't accept the grounds within the acknowledgement of service that they're sending back to the court and the response back, but they do nonetheless accept that the marriage is over and they don't intend to defend the petition. And that starts the process from the court. In other words, the court have got our petition and they've now got the, the, the acknowledgement of service from the respondent saying they know what the grounds are and they don't intend to defend the divorce or they do intend to defend the divorce. Do you have a passion, hobby or expertise and want to share it with the world? Why not do a podcast? The PodStation offers a wide range of packages to make this a reality, ranging from training and support for those who have no idea where to begin to podcasters who just need somewhere to host their show. With prices starting at a mere £15 per month, you can now get involved in one of the fastest growing entertainment forms in the world without all the headaches. To find out more, visit thepodstation.co.uk forward slash station dash packages. And remember, those with passion, podcast. What happens if they do intend to defend it? Does that add an extra section into the process? Is there like a hearing for people to have an argument over the, the points? Um, well, we'll often with that, well, then it will go to the court to decide um, on that. It will often lead to a hearing, uh, refer to directions set out by the judge as how they're going to pro process that matter. And as I said, um, it's very rare for people to defend divorce, but um, ultimately, if they, it is their choice, they can. And if they do so, um, then the court will have to consider that and decide on the uh, application, how they're going to move this forward. And this is generally by listing the matter for a hearing and, and then setting out, listening to the parties and then setting out directions as to ultimately this will move forward to a final hearing to see whether or not the fact has been proven. And the court, they get it, the, the, it's either not disputed or they make a decision. Um, what happens once it's kind of ratified by the court, it's, it, it's accepted that, that what's been asked for is, is going to be approved? Well, what happens is once the court have received, let's assume it's an undefended application. If it's a defended application, firstly, then obviously it's directions and it runs, it runs along the normal track of getting to a final hearing and a determination. However, in an undefended case, this is essentially an exercise which is an administrative exercise where the court will uh, consider your petition, consider the respondent's reply in the form of acknowledgement service, 
And then if they're satisfied that the marriage has broken down, that one of the facts has been proven, they will then uh, send out an order uh, to the parts to say that the um, petitioner now has the um, satisfied that point and he has an entitlement to a decree, NISI. Once the parties have completed the petition and the acknowledgement of service has been retained to the court, the court will then send us a copy of the acknowledgement of service if you're acting for the petitioner. Um, the, you will then ask your client to confirm if um, if the grounds of uh, the, the acknowledgement of service are signed by his partner, or if not, it will be signed by their legal representative. And at that point, you will then be entitled to make an application for a decree NISI. Now, a decree NISI is the, um, if you like, the interim stage, which um, where the judge, you're asking the judge to grant the decree to say that the divorce uh, should be uh, granted uh, on the grounds that's before him when the petition and the acknowledgement is, is sent to him. Um, the, the court or the judge will consider those. If he's satisfied that the ground and the fact have been uh, completed, uh, it will send it out to the uh, petitioners to say that the entitlement to a grant of decree NISI has been uh, proven and he will set a date in court when the decree NISI will be pronounced. And that's generally a couple of weeks later. Neither party needs to attend that hearing. It's, a, it's just a pronouncement that the decree NISI has been granted in, in court. And you will then receive a further order confirming that, saying that six weeks and one day uh, from the date of that hearing, the petitioner can apply to make uh, for the decree to be made absolute, which will therefore end the marriage. Um, the, the importance of the decree NISI is that it, first of all, confirms to the, the, the respondent and to the petitioner that the court is satisfied that, that the facts and the grounds for a divorce have been satisfied and that therefore they are entitled to divorce. Secondly, it also allows from that point for the parties to submit a financial order, um, which often can be by consent. Um, sometimes it's obviously not and they're not able to do that. Um, and it may take a number of months before they can reach settlement. But however, in the, in the event that the parties have agreed the financial terms um, and that's all agreed, and once that order is ratified by the court, six weeks and one day after the initial decree NISI, um, the petitioner can apply for the decree NISI to be made uh, absolute. Three, if, if that's not done by the petitioner, um, at that point, the respondent is entitled three months later to make his own application to, for the decree NISI to be made absolute. Um, often what how practitioners deal with this matter is, particularly if there's, is, if there's um, finances to be dealt with, is they'll ask the other side for an undertaking not to apply for the decree absolute until such time that the finances are resolved um, and that so all of the matters are then tied up um, in one package as such. Okay, so the, 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 the decree NISI, which is almost like a temporary ending of the marriage in legal terms, 
when you get the decree, does that mean that your you, your marriage is effectively dissolved? It's not completely resolved because you've still got to get the absolute bit at the end. But for the purposes of while you're sorting out all the rest of it, you are technically divorced, or it, it does it, not... it actually means you're entitled to the divorce, to the grant of the divorce. Got you. You're not you're not divorced, and you do have to go to the the next stage, which is the decree absolute before the the marriage is ended. But it opens up the opportunity for it it gives the other side six weeks and one day or to basically you can you can actually not take the step of making the, the decree nine side absolute and therefore you're not divorced until you do so and um, but it's, it's also a period which gives you six weeks or so um, where it focuses the mind the other party can apply for it in six weeks and one day and you you know it's best for all parties if there's other issues to tie up like finances they do that as quickly as possible within that period. Obviously, if you're not able to do that, as I've said previously, the way to deal with it is to seek the approval of the other side by way of an undertaking that, um, or, the, or they should seek from you, sorry, if they're respondent, that you won't make the application for the decree absolute until such time okay. as that. So the, the decree is the first step, really. It just gives you the reassurance that what you're trying to achieve will be granted once you've sorted out all the extra the little pieces, for example, like the finance. Um, how... can I, can I just, sorry, sorry, can I just say you don't have to sort out your finances. It's not a requirement. No, but uh, you have the scope to do it if you want yeah. it then. I mean, some people don't have any finances to argue over. And so they just go to the next stage. It's just, it's just a, um, it's a safeguard for people to understand that um, you should try to deal with all those matters within the same family proceeding. So I, it's a bit of a how long is a piece of string question, but I'm going to ask it nevertheless. <laughs> how long does a divorce process, the part that we're talking about today, usually take? Well, again, this depends entirely, I suppose, in terms of the, the court that you're dealing with and the workload of that court. Um, there's been varying different um, issues for, for the court in terms of staffing. But in general, and there's some um, some information on this, that the decree sign from start to petition generally should be achieved within a six-month period. Um, and thereafter... The decree absolute uh, within a 48 to 52 week period from the start of the petition so it's probably a six month period followed by a further uh, six months if you're trying to sort out finances if there are no finances then you once you get to the decree now so you can apply for the decree absolute six weeks and one day later um, but as i said before it, it, it it's better to tie those matters up if you can okay um and I guess one of the main questions that people perhaps, and, and this is probably a conversation you will have with them at the outset, what are the consequences of becoming divorced? What are the sort of things you might want to consider changing, addressing um, to reflect the change in your legal circumstances? Obviously, you, you are... In, if you're getting a final order, you're you're basically a lot of people are seeking to to um, end their relationship on a clean break arrangement. That means that there's no 
claim against each other in relation to income, capital, um, any liabilities, pensions, um, or, or any other claims against each other on a state on death. So we, one of the first things we obviously we would be saying to people, you need to change any wills that you've got in place, advise them that's up to them. Um, sometimes it's not possible to, to have a clean break arrangement um, for, for various reasons that are tied into different things or um, for, for just basically because um, it's not practical in terms of the finances or the children or, or, or whatever. And often people remain in the property until the children reach a certain um, age. But um, what we would be advising people, each case has to be on its merits. We would explain to them where they're going to be when that happens and what advice in terms of the finances they should um, they should take in dealing with the issues that remain outstanding. You say that you file a petition, but what happens if the other side don't acknowledge it or reply to it? Um, well, they generally should respond to the petition. Uh, it, it says that really they should be responding within seven days of receiving the petition. The, the, the petition is that if there is no response to the court, the only alternative for the petitioner is to um, contact the court and advise that the petition, is, the acknowledgement is not being uh, returned. And therefore, you're asking the court to personally serve the petition on the respondent. And that will involve uh, you paying a fee. Um, I think it's in the region of 100 to £110 at this moment. And that the court will then use one of the court bailiffs to personally serve the petition on the, res on the respondent. Um, the importance of that is, is that the court, the judge, when he's considering the next stage of whether how to proceed with the divorce, he will be satisfied that the respondent is aware of the divorce, is aware of the grounds that the petitioner is seeking to end the marriage, and is satisfied that the respondent has received the documentation, which will enable them to either uh, defend the divorce or confirm that they wish to proceed on an undefended basis. So we've tried to cram what is quite clearly a quite complex and difficult topic into a rather short space of time. Um, there will undoubtedly be things that weren't necessarily clear or you have further questions on. If people want to get in touch with you, Chris, to get those questions answered or to book an appointment with you, how can they get in touch? Well, they can visit our website um, and, and the details of how to contact us on that. They can contact me directly uh, to my email, which is chris.johnson at johnsonandboon.co.uk or they can contact me via info at johnsonandboon.co.uk um, or they can, they can telephone us on our, on our office number and or download our app from our website uh, and they can make an appointment directly on that where they want to select the date and time um, it will set up our diaries and we can ag agree to contact them there. I'd just like to say that um, we're not confined to dealing with people on a localised basis. We we deal with people um, all over the country. We can deal with them by telephone, Skype, Zoom. Um, I have a client who currently resides in um, 
on the content in Europe at the moment. Um, and we and so any way in which people want to contact us, it's not limited to face to face discussions. It can be um, by any means that they wish to, to deal with us, uh, and we can get the ball in, in, in motion and we can give relevant advice um, by that means. Fantastic. So, yeah, as you heard, the mobile apps are definitely a great thing to download. You can get loads of things on there, like booking the appointment. As I said at the outset, you can actually check out all the other podcast shows that we've done. So if there's a topic that's particularly relevant for you, you can listen to that and, again, hear some tips and some advice uh, that would um, particularly be of use to you. If you go to www.johnsonandboon.co.uk and there's a contact page, there's all the contact information there if you don't happen to have a pen and paper handy. Although, that being said, given you listen to a podcast, they do have the pause and rewind option. So, um, pauses. And if you've now unpaused us because you've got a pen and pad handy, just rewind and listen to what Chris said. Uh, so, thank you very much, Chris, for... Uh, for giving us your time today. It's been uh, very useful, very fascinating. Do we know what topic we're going to be covering next show? Next podcast will be on business structures. Oh, and who's going to be doing it? We intend to do uh, the podcast on a weekly basis, so there'll be a variety of uh, law topics that we'll cover, um, and that will include right across the range of services that we offer at Johnson & Boone. If anybody would like to put forward any um, discussion discussion topics that they would like us to cover again they can contact us on our on our website for our email uh, and, and send in suggestions and we're quite happy to put on um, a podcast for them in the future um, but each week we'll tell you what we're going to cover the following week and who's going to be doing that show do we know um, I think it will either be Mr Robert Boone again um, or <laughs> we might have Mr Jonathan Field again Wow, you're, you're taking a week off, are you? Um, I'm self-isolating. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Chris. That's brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Cheers. Get social at Johnson & Boone on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.